I've been once to a house in town, certain kind of house. You mean a bordello, Baron? Yes. You, Baron? Yes. Why? You think I've never been to one? Oh. While I was in medical school, most of the boys used to go to such a place. They always wanted me to go with them, knowing what kind of good student I was. Never leaving my book, not even for one hour. And still I was foolish enough to want to be accepted in their company. Once I left my books and I went with them. What happened? It was terrible. All these overdeveloped women with their large breasts, unshapeless. And this kind of women supposed to give you pleasure with their filthy movements and dirty talk. How this woman even can compare with a beautiful creation like mine? Or even with my sister. To find a man who likes to make love to anything, you have to go to such a place. This is the Criterion Creeps Podcast. I'm Jared Duncan. RJ Baylog. And we're just two guys who have no other choice now but to creep our way through the Criterion Collection one spine number at a time in order to release. This week, we're collecting the dead bodies and drinking the blood of virgins as we're talking about Paul Morrissey's Flesh for Frankenstein from 1973 and Blood for Dracula from 1974. But first, RJ, congratulations. On what? I heard that you have a master's degree now, as of like 24 hours ago. It's actually a mustard's, mustard's degree. It's a, a little bit different. It's a, it, You get it at Hot Dog University. <laughs> I don't know where I'm going with this, but uh, yeah, I guess I did it. Yeah, where uh, It's not even, as you said... Yay, thank you. Not even 24 hours hot off of that bad boy. So yeah. all my torment and all the things people have heard me talking about, it's, it's finally over. Mm-hmm. And so now you, no one will ever have to hear about it again. Yeah, I don't know how uh, well it comes across, but uh, your voice sounds so weak now. So so much defending, so much yeah. presenting, so much uh, merriment and drink afterwards. Yeah. Karaoke. It was many of those things. Uh, Mm. Yeah. So the majority of the day was spent talking and did my presentation, which you were actually in in attendance of, which was very nice of you to do. Yeah. Didn't have to. It's kind of boring stuff, but he was there. Mm -hmm. Other people were there. My parents came. That's cool. Yeah. I didn't think they'd really care, but (laughs) no, I'm just kidding. They were happy. Mm -hmm. Uh, But no, yeah, I I talked. And then uh, I did my defense, which was like an hour long. So I just had to talk that whole time. Mm -hmm. And then afterwards, I went to dinner. I talked there as well. Got a big old baseball steak, some baked garlic shrimp. The finest dinner, Jarrett. Finest dinner. Uh, And then, yeah, I went to a local pub establishment and uh, indulged in some tomfoolery of the karaoke kind, mm-hmm. uh, which is not something I normally do. But um, when when we were trying to figure out what to do on a Tuesday night, a place that was about two blocks from our house 
has $3 beers and karaoke. And we said, hey, man, that sounds okay. So, yeah, lots of fun was to be had. Um, I, I sang some songs mm-hmm. of note. Uh, my go-to, Brick House, but the Commodores, mm-hmm. as well as uh, there was a Bon Jovi uh, song from the ensemble, uh, the group we were with. Uh, I also did a little Jaw Rule. Mm-hmm. That was pretty tough. And, uh, and then I also did The Darkness later on. And I think that was the best one. Uh, I am a fan of the darkness. However, I don't think anyone else in the world is, but uh, I really, I really poured out my heart into that one. So, yeah. <laughs> you were also in attendance there. I don't know uh, how did it briefly. How did it look from the audience? Uh, was it revolutionary? Um, well, I was, I was there for the first set, I guess. Um, yes. It, yep. You, uh, you're definitely braver than I. Well, I think a good bit of that has to come with the drink. And as people yeah. know, I'm normally an alcoholic. So on the day that I I finished school, I, yeah. I tried to kick it up to a uh, basically the limit of human uh, achievement. I don't know what I'm talking about. No, I'm, that's, I'm that's, tired. Um, so at the end of uh, so two and a half years later, uh, was it worth it? Um, uh, I'm glad I have a master's degree. Uh-huh. Uh, knowing now what I knew then, maybe I maybe do a few things different but no it's good it was a good experience for me i know how a certain part of the world works now and by that i mean academic research Mm -hmm. i can i can vaguely describe that to other people and what it entails so no it's good learned a few things Mm -hmm. uh i just hope i can get a job now that's the big question right jared Mm mm-hmm that's the big question. That, that old gainful employment. Well, uh, the one thing you uh, didn't mention, though, is the uh, incredible gift uh, you received uh, at, the, uh, at the pub establishment. Yes, this is right. Uh, so friend of the show, uh, Erica Vass, um, I've known her since elementary, since we were about five years old, so for a very long time. She's listening to the show. She enjoys a certain aspect uh, and that is me talking about the fine folks at the Pizza Hut company. Um, and as such, she went out and uh, she went above and beyond. She got me some Pizza Hut products as a gift. Uh, a toque and a hat, all with the big Pizza Hut brand label up on there. And uh, it was it's pretty incredible. I wore the toque today and it is a, I'm not even going to lie, Jared, it is a top quality toque. My head was roasting. Uh, so it's not bacon what in expect. that oven. It was bacon in that hot oven. Like so, not only do they have quality products and pizza, the freshest ingredients, but they make quality clothing products as well. And uh, apparently, when she went there and she asked for this stuff, the lady who was like uh, working the um, the cash register or whatever, she was like, she's like, are you serious? Do you really want like Pizza Hut stuff? She's like, nobody's ever asked me this before. She's like, worked there for like ten years. She's like, she's like, this is this is amazing. She's like, I never thought anyone would ever buy that or like want this stuff. And she actually just gave it to her for free because she was so like, so happy that somebody <laughs> wanted to go out there and just just share what we all know and love, mm-hmm. and that's Big Papa Pizza Hut. So, yeah, that was pretty pretty. Uh, pretty super cool so i'm gonna start bringing that up again uh, we are not endorsed by pizza hut however maybe one day maybe one day maybe one day i actually I, I don't think i mentioned to you i also got some other pretty cool gifts uh roommate scott yep now this goes back to a past episode do you remember in the killer 
how in the library scene, Mm -hmm. the killer gets his gun from a certain object. And I remember we were talking, I brought it up in the show how, um, so he has like a hollowed out book that he keeps a gun in and how Scott said that would be great for like candy. You could put like Skittles in there and stuff. Scott made me a hollowed out book. (laughs) And he filled it with candy. Um, the, the question on all our minds is what book did he use? It's really funny. It's called like Copperhead or Copperwood. And it's like the picture on the front is of like a Confederate army on horses with like <laughs> flags and stuff. And it's perfect because no one would probably. No one would ever pick that book up. <laughs> no one would ever pick it up. They'd be like, what is this thing? So it, it'll blend in like seamlessly on the bookshelf. No one. It'll never warrant anyone's uh inspection mm-hmm. but uh yeah he like uh i don't know how he did it we'll have to get him to guest on here but you like glue all the pages together and then you like carve out and in the inside and stuff like that so i now have a, a secret stash for candy and pizza hut coupons and things of that nature outstanding so, pretty cool man so john Wu, i'm coming after you next man <laughs> so RJ, uh, amongst all that preparation you were doing for this thesis defense, uh, were you able to creep on anything successfully? I actually got one in for you. Yeah, I did. Um, yeah, I was I was trying to study, and then uh, I saw my boss the weekend before, and uh, he told me to relax and not to study too hard. So I, I took that as um, I don't know. It made me. I was like, oh, okay. So I watched a movie, uh, and I watched. The uh, the night of, I think. Yep. Is that what it's called? That's the, the night before. Okay. The night before from uh, 2015, and that's starring everybody's uh, favorite: Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Seth Rogen, and Anthony Mackie. Um, this is a Christmas movie, and I know you're all about the Christmas movies. Uh, are you familiar with this? I know what the movie is. Yeah, I haven't seen it though. Yeah. So it's like uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's like an orphan. And Seth Rogen and Anthony Mackie, every year they spend Christmas with him so he doesn't feel bad. But they're all old now. Seth Rogen has like a family and Anthony Mackie's like a celebrity athlete. So they don't have time for it anymore. So they're going to have like one more big party on like Christmas Eve. Um, it was okay. Like uh, it was better than I thought it would be, to be honest. Uh, I, I'm usually pretty game with Seth Rogen stuff, like 8 out of 10. I, I like most of his things. There's a few that I don't, but usually I like his stuff. And the comedy was good. That's one thing we've talked about before is how sometimes comedies really just can't hit it or they even get dated by even a year. So I thought this one was good. Uh, a lot of good jokes. The standout, man, Michael Shannon is in this fucking movie in, a, in like a pretty, like he's really funny. So I don't know. I've, I've never seen him in like, a comedy before except maybe mm-hmm. bad boys too but he's only in that movie for like a minute um yeah michael shannon was awesome he he plays like a drug dealer and he's very he like speaks in terms of like metaphysical like uh theories and like stuff like that he was awesome and uh i like my boy jogo that's what i call him you know joseph gordon levitt we're we're pretty tight though i call him at homes talk to him on weekends uh no nah, it wasn't bad as far as Christmas movies go, yeah. If you're looking for something to watch, that something you haven't seen a hundred times, the the good old reliable ones. Mm-hmm. So that's all I really gotta say. It wasn't too bad. It's worth watching. Okay. Yeah. I also noticed you watched yourself some Home Alone. Uh, I did. 
yeah, Home Alone's awesome. Yeah. Uh, I don't care what anyone says if they think it's dated. Um, it's almost a perfect movie. There's almost no plot holes in that movie at all. The only thing that uh, we, when we watched it, Andrew's like, why is there a dog door? They don't have a dog. And I was like, well, maybe the dog died. She's like, well, they should they should fucking mention that. So anyways, that movie's awesome. I don't really know. What's there to say about Home Alone? Uh, other than me and my brother, for as long as I can remember, going on 20 years, uh, whenever we see each other or someone does something, like say we're, uh, we're all at like having Christmas together and say like you spill something, we'll just look at each other and just be like, look what you did, you little jerk. <laughs> so that is an ongoing thing between me and him, mm-hmm. calling each other calling each other little jerks. So that's the big takeaway. But Joe Pesci, Daniel Stern, man. Those wet bandits. The wet bandits. That movie is too sweet. There you go. Yeah. Well, I, watched a, I watched a few movies that I'll just mention. Um, oh. My buddy Corey, he ordered a martial arts film online Uh-oh. that was kind of a blind purchase. It's called uh, the, it's like the, the Holy Flames of the Martial World. Um, I had never heard of this film uh, until he popped it into the DVD player, and, uh-huh. just, and it just—it's a Shaw Brothers movie, and it just started rolling. And um, I've never seen a martial arts movie that's like this unrelenting in its pace. Um, mm-hmm. It is just nonstop action, like where like we started laughing at just how fast everything happens. Like it is so compressed, the subtitles mm-hmm. just fly by, um, and it's just—I yeah, don't even know what the plot is anymore i say that a lot it seems um yeah the movie is just like uh two like a uh, kind of a couple are on the run from a temple uh that they're all after the same like secret uh weapons and like secret swords or something like that and yeah uh, they're all after them to get the secret swords because each of the different clans and schools of fighting they want these sort mystical swords uh, or the one mystical sword and then they die defending the secret of where these swords are located but then they're like babies are kind of taken by different camps the one the bad guys take one child and good guy takes another child and they get raised up and they all meet later on <clears throat> And it's all just a big excuse to just set up these crazy, ridiculous set pieces of fights um, that are just, like I said, like nonstop. Like you never know when there's going to be a moment to breathe. Like usually there's a movie, mm-hmm. like movies have a, like breathing space to like pace things. But no, not this movie. It's all high spots um, it's, and it's nonstop. So it's like it borders on tedious because it's like there's so much action and it's like, Kind of mm-hmm. hard to take, which is like really impressive for like 1983. Like you wouldn't think that that a movie like that would have that kind of pace. Um, but yeah, no, it's like ridiculous. Uh, if you're a fan of martial arts, Shaw Brothers stuff, um, it doesn't really seem to have like as big a rep as a lot of the more mainstreamish ones of that school. But yeah, it's a very cool movie. Um, mm-hmm. I watched a movie that I think you've also seen called The Invitation. Ah, yeah. Yeah, I know that movie. Yeah, I don't know if we, I don't think we talked about it on the show. Not on the show. But uh, so the invitation, uh, I, I knew of it because uh, Draft House Films put it out, and mm-hmm. uh, I, I think it's on Netflix at least uh, here in Canada. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And I kind of went into it vaguely, not like kind of not really knowing anything about it, which is how I prefer best. to go in. Um, yep. So this is a movie about a man in grieving who goes with his new girlfriend to his ex-wife's 
uh, house mm-hmm. where you kind of get the, like the sense of something has happened, but you don't know what it is. But it's kind of quickly laid out that um, they've split up because uh, their son has died. And mm-hmm. this kind of drove them apart. She tried killing herself. He couldn't handle the grief. And so they went on their separate ways. But his ex-wife had gone down to Mexico with another guy. And while down there, they hooked up with sort of this like new age kind of cult thing that's just like kind of left vague. Um, And so now she's come back after two years of not being in communication. And they've invited all their friends and family to their house to kind of get back together. Um, Mm -hmm. but it turns out it's kind of more like a weird presentation about this group that they've joined and thinking they should all like kind of be a part of it too and open to this new experience. Um, and then, I mean, the whole movie is just kind of like setting up that something's wrong. And like, all you see is the main guy Mm -hmm. kind of like looking around in the house that he used to live in. And, uh, he, he see glimpses of things that look kind of off, like these, like new, these new people that have been invited to this, like, uh, group of friends that they don't know who they are. They just know that they're from Mexico and they're part of this group. And they, they seem like kind of whispering stuff to one another and like doing strange things. And then he gets kind of just sidetracked or sidetracked or distracted by someone saying, Hey, can you come here for a moment? You should come back mm-hmm. inside. Um, and so like the, like the first hour of the movie is just kind of all that set up at this dinner party. Um, and then, uh, the movie kind of just goes in exactly the direction it was going to go in because, I mean, it started laying out this sort of like Manson-esque vibe throughout and because it's Los Angeles and there seems to be a bunch of movies set in Los Angeles that have come out that have cults in them. This right. is no different. And then things go crazy. And it turns mm-hmm. out he was right all along that they this is sort of a death cult and they're trying to kill them. And, and it's like, so it's like, okay, it doesn't it didn't really change much of anything you know you kind of knew where it was going to go um mm-hmm. otherwise it wasn't a movie um so at the end of the time like at the t- after watching it i kind of was like yeah i'd like that movie it was pretty good um i did like kind of like laugh out loud almost at the end of the movie because it's just kind of like silly um but i like the ending i i don't know it just seems like i've seen that elsewhere now and it seems like it's an easy place to go um sure so spoilers people uh <laughs> The, the whole movie kind of goes into a territory where, uh, how does it, the, so the, the, the people you think are cultists, they are cultists. They try to kill mm-hmm. everyone in the party. They kill almost everybody except for a guy and his girlfriend. And his girlfriend is like not very good in this movie at all. Like she, she has like maybe 10 lines in the whole thing. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a non-presence. Um, and then they think they've, they've done it. They've killed the cultists and they're all okay. But then they kind of go out into like the Los Angeles Hills across the valley or whatever. And they can see that there's this like lamp that had been turned on earlier by one of the cultists. And we didn't know what that mm-hmm. meant, but it's supposed to show that like, Oh look, all these other houses around the area, they'll have, they'll have the lanterns on too. And then you hear screams in the distance and helicopters racing around. And the mm-hmm. idea is that this cult has taken over and it's widespread. And I don't know. I, it just, it kind of just made me go, whatever. It's like, I, I had, it's actually a very similar reaction I had to like the end of the movie, The Mist, where I kind of just like, went, oh, okay. oh, whatever. Like, it just seems See, like it's it's trying too hard for me. Um, See, I like the end of The Mist too. I'm like the only person alive who likes that ending. Oh, you're so not. maybe that's why I like uh, I like the ending to this movie too. Yeah, in, in the world of just you and I, you are the only person who likes it. But there's lots of people yes. who think that's like the best ending ever. And mm-hmm. uh, Invitation is kind of like ah, that ending kind of bugged me. And then like whenever I talk about the movie afterwards, I kind of go, that movie's like not great. Um, I don't know. I, I feel weird yeah. about it. But what I mean, I think you liked it 
from what I, I recall. Did. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I liked it when I watched it. I, I like you, I just threw it on blind, didn't yeah. know what it was. And I thought it was really like a really good kind of suspense thriller. You know, stuff is up. You don't know what's going on. Right. It's very subtle. Um, you got the dude who was the brother on the Drew Carey show, who's just like, whenever you see him, you just know he's like a dirty, bad guy, I guess. That's all I can see him is now is like because he's in movies like Zodiac and he's in those American horror stories is like a greasy bad guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I always remember him as the uh, cross-dressing brother from the Drew Carey show. I always think of him but as anyways, Norm in Fargo. In Far- yeah, yeah, see that too. He's uh, Three cent stamp. Three cent stamp. <laughs> uh, no, yeah, I, I thought it was good, man. Like I thought it was nice, suspenseful thriller. I don't know if I'm, I'd maybe watch it again in a couple mm-hmm. of years. Yeah. Uh, I, I like Logan Marshall Green. I think he's a pretty good actor. Yeah. The, like the main guy. Yeah, yeah. I don't really know his him at all. Uh, I think he was in Prometheus. Okay. Hmm. I, I, I couldn't tell you anything else he's in, but uh, I know that he was once situated to be a, a big actor, but I don't think it ever really took off. Uh... I think he's good. Logan Marshall Green. What else has he been? Oh, he's in that Snowden movie. Oh, that's oh, too bad. Was he, and he's in Across the Universe. I wonder if he was in it at really much. I see he's not the main guy in that. Mm, probably no, not. No, he's just in it somewhere. Yeah. Okay. That's him. Mm. Um, that's the invitation. Uh, kind yep. of thumbs in the middle for me. Uh, the other movie I checked out, uh, which actually makes this two movies in a row by uh, female directors, because uh, I watched Blue Steel mm-hmm. from 1990, uh, starring Jamie Lee Curtis, directed by Catherine Bigelow. Um, and I had never mm-hmm. seen this movie before. I'd seen it always pop up, and it kind of falls into like my uh, interest in 90s thrillers. But um, mm-hmm. watching the movie, uh, it's just about uh, Jamie Lee Curtis is a rookie who, like, on her first night, basically on the beat, uh, she winds up stopping a grocery store robbery um, and killing the assailant because he turned his gun on her. But after she shoots, lights him up, kills him, he drops his gun and a good old Ron Silver. Uh, mm-hmm. he's just happened to be, happens to be in the grocery store at that time. And he, the gun falls right in front of him and he just kind of takes the gun and takes it with him. And then of course the guns now disappeared from the crime scene. And of course her, uh, the stupid chief character is like, what's all this? There was no gun at all. And, uh, so you're not capable of being a police officer. You're suspended. So she gets mm-hmm. the shaft cause she's a woman. And, uh, oh, and, man. and, uh, Ron Silver proceeds to go on a crime spree with his new gun. And just uh, killing people for no particular reason. But he mm-hmm. also, for some reason, becomes obsessed with Jamie Lee Curtis's character to the point where like he actually do. starts like carve, uh, yeah, like uh, carving her name into the bullet casings. So when they take the bullets out of these these victims, it's like her name's on it for some reason. Um, mm-hmm. They never really explained that one too much, other than he got fixated. Um, and... I get fixated on people all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Follow them around and stuff. Mm-hmm. And well, so he like he full on approaches her and like starts a relationship with her. They have sex. Mm-hmm. Um, very steamy. There's like scenes of her like running her fingers through his beard, that Ron Silver beard. Um, yeah. And uh, I don't know, like the, he just like plays off more like almost like a supernatural kind of threat. Like it's kind of like not, I don't know. He's like really intense and there's some good moments with him, but on the whole, there's just something really missing with that movie. 
Uh, it looks great, mm-hmm. but I don't know. There's people who really like that movie an awful lot, but I don't know. It seems like it, it just takes way too many shortcuts that are just kind of like, really? This it, it just seems lazy in the screenplay part um, while looking good. But mm-hmm. yeah, Jamie Lee Curtis is Jamie Lee. She's good. She's great. Um, believe like I think the weird thing is like she's supposed to be coming from this like working class Italian background, and like she's like so not like ethnically Italian seeming to me. <laughs> like she just mm. she seems super waspy. Like she just like so it's like this idea that all her friends are like all New Yorkers and they talk like this, and uh, oh. she's and she's just like nope. She's just Jamie Lee Curtis cast in this movie. Well. I mean, I'm not going to watch that movie. There you go. But was Jamie Lee Curtis cool in it? Yeah, that's what I was saying. She's good. Yeah. It's just kind of like, like an odd cast. Oh, Clancy Brown's in it too. And he, ooh, I, I do his, like Clancy his, Brown. His character's name, Nick Mann. And, of ooh. course, he's sexist. Because <laughs> the whole, world, the whole world is sexist in this movie. Yeah. Yeah, I, um, I I like him. I'd maybe watch it for that. Yeah, so it's yeah, nice looking movie, but like I don't know, nothing super memorable. Very like '90s mm. thriller, but like nothing right. to like really recommend it. If you want to hear watch a good '90s thriller, check out Pacific Heights starring Michael Keaton. That movie is fantastic. Is that something you watched recently, or no. you're just that's just random? Out a wreck. That's a wreck, folks. All right. Yeah. Anywho, I'll take it as it is. Uh, what news do you have for us this week? Not a whole hell of a lot, Jer. Oh. It, it didn't seem like a lot of stuff happened. You had other things on your plate, too. Uh, Yeah, I guess a little bit. But I did keep an eye out. I just didn't see anything interesting. Um, all I know about is some DC comic movie news. Oh, okay. Ben Affleck's going to film his Batman movie this year. Yeah? The, in cool. the, in the, the rest of 2016? Yes. <laughs> yeah, in the next week. That's all he needs. No, uh, in the upcoming year, I believe, in the spring. So he'll be he'll be filming his Batman movie with Joe Magaliano mm-hmm. as uh, the Deathstroke, I think is what the kids call him. Well, it's always a it's a good step, I guess, when you're making a movie to actually go film it at some point. To go film it, yeah. Well, he's been very coy about the whole thing for a long time. <laughs> that like he wasn't gonna do it, or like he's like, no, there's no movie. But then like Jeremy Irons is like, yeah, yeah, we're filming in like a couple months. And Ben Affleck's like, no, no, we're not even done the script yet. We're we're not doing it. And then Joe Mangliano was like, no, yeah, the script's done. We're doing it in a couple months. So it seems weird, but I guess it's happening. And I heard a, a different DC comic movie thing. There's going to be a Harley Quinn spinoff from the Suicide Squad movie. Did you see that wow. coming? No, not at all. <laughs> no one saw that coming. Called uh, Gotham City Sirens. So I'm guessing it'll be Harley Quinn and uh, Catwoman and Poison Ivy. Yeah, that's the, what the some, comic some is. Some sort of team up like that. Yeah. Uh, with David Ayer returning to direct oh. Margot Robbie. So he's going to be doing that, I guess. Well, I guess it wasn't that bad of an experience then. Uh, well, no, he did. He, I think he handled it pretty well when his movie was getting a lot of shit. He just, he was like, nope, that's the movie. He didn't completely implode on himself like uh, the Max Landis's or the Josh Tranks of the world. <laughs> like when Fantastic Four came out. And uh, like before it even came out, two weeks before that, Josh Trank guy was just like, "Yeah, this movie's fucking garbage. I had nothing to do with it." Oh, I and just that. just buried his fucking career. Like, is he is he gonna work again? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, that's like usually not a good move to bury your movie for the studio right beforehand. 
before it even came out. Yeah. And so they, they lost tons of money on that. But like it was no different for Suicide Squad. It was getting a lot of bad buzz too. But David, And like it's clear that it wasn't David Ayer's fault. But like I think he did the smart thing. It was just like, oh, no, it's just a movie, you know. Whatever. <laughs> Whatever. Wow. I'm just I'm just on uh, Josh Trank's uh, Wikipedia page, and uh, yeah, the last thing. So Fantastic Four 2015. His next project, something called Fonzo, that he wrote and direct. It's like just to be announced. So that's the last thing. That's the last update he mm-hmm. had. Uh, and the funny one here is critical reception, which you don't really see ever on like pages. A dark it's like, page. Yeah, it's like critical reception just to show Chronicle, Rotten Tomatoes, 85 percent, Fantastic Four. Nine percent, and it has like their IMDb and their Metacritic and their Cinema Score. That is like so weird. Ugh, what a that's like probably the worst decision. Like honestly, probably the worst decision you could make unless you're just in it for the money as a director is to get involved in making like superhero movies because you just attract Mm -hmm. like garbage people that like are who that's like that's their entire value system is like oh your is your movie Uh, how many Batman's does it have in it how many Captain Americas and it's like that's what they that's all they care about or whatever franchise Mm -hmm. it has or like what's its box office going to be yeah I don't think he was the right fit for that I heard some stuff about when they were filming they like rent the studio rented him a house and he just like trashed the house and like wouldn't show up some days and so it sounds like he's kind of a I think that guy's done well, I mean, even it, though that story is not true, but they're, obviously they're putting out that, those stories now to mm-hmm. like bury the guy. So, yeah, yeah, don't don't bury the big studios, uh, movie d- directors. Mm-hmm. That's usually a bad move. Like if you want to stay in <laughs> yeah. that business, but hey, at the same time, just eh. just do the Alan Smithy. Yeah, <laughs> if, if you're not down with that, it, that's as bad though. Like that, you yep. can't do that anymore. You, you have to come up with a new fake name. Smithy Allen. There you go. No one will see you through it. Yeah. Um, uh, my only it. piece of news is that I watched a movie trailer. Uh, I watched War for the Planet of the Apes. That's coming out next year, I guess. It's going to be directed by Matt Reeves once again. Um, this is that, that CGI deal? Uh, what do you mean? I don't know. It's, is that movie entirely it's like, CGI? No, it's got some live action. It's got live action. It's got yeah. actors. It's got Ooh. one actor. I had no idea was involved with it. So to lay out this trailer, um, I was not a fan of it because uh, I don't think it's supposed to be making me laugh. <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, so it, it looks like exactly like where the last movie left off. It's like, uh, you know, uh, gorillas on horses. And right. they're, they're on a beach, got to make those callbacks. And it's all right. like Caesar doing a voiceover narration, just very super, like super serious, um, mm-hmm. laying out how things have gotten to this point. And then there's a montage of a bunch of like camouflage military humans doing stuff. And it looks like they're doing raids and whatnot. Uh, and they're being, they're trying to go back. They're going into the forest to find these apes, I guess. And they're retaliating. It's like mm-hmm. so I'm like okay, it's the exact same movie again. We're, we're going, yep. we're going back, um, and then we get the, the reveal of the villain, I guess, the human villain of the movie, and it's a it's a white man shaving his head, and oh, then man. and then the voice starts, and it's like why by God, it's Woody Harrelson, and so <laughs> of course, so we get his, so like the first half of the trailer is is the Caesar narration, and then the second half is Woody Harrelson doing the narration, and it's yeah. just like him saying things like the irony is that we created you, and now you will destroy us, and now we will battle here. It will be a war 
for the Planet of Apes. And uh, a little on the nose. A little spot. I'm like, is that like actual dialogue from the movie that they're they're going to pull this off? Will they? And it's just like, uh, I don't know. And hey, I thought like I I love the Planet of the Apes franchise on the whole. Um, mm-hmm. The original movies are ace. I even like the Tim Burton movie. Uh, I've never laughed so much as at the end of that movie with the audacity of Abraham yeah. Lincoln. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I've liked the the just the just Franco the James Franco uh, movie. I thought yep. it was very cool. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Is that, is that the first or second one? I'm blank. Dawn, this... Rise, whatever. The second one. Uh, yeah. I I don't know. I thought the movie was okay, but I thought the ending was kind of dumb. Like with like, I hate superhero like main good guy characters who have to like some, kill villains. I always find that mm-hmm. kind of I don't know. It, it always takes me out of those movies, um, especially if you're watching Miyazaki movies about like great selfless characters who act in the best nature without like doing stuff mm-hmm. like that. So War of the Planet of the Apes is probably just going to keep going along in that line, just getting darker and grittier, which. I'm not a fan of in general my mm-hmm. Hollywood blockbusters, but right. that's my trailer talk. Hmm. I uh, I like those eight movies too. Yeah, uh, the old ones I haven't seen all of them, but I did like that James Franco one. I thought the science in that was pretty cool. Yeah, um, I liked all all the stuff that they did there. I think uh, one of my friends, the way they uh, the way she described the second one is the most fitting. Uh, her review in one word was uh, trite. She was like, it was very trite. Like, it, none of it seemed like it needed to happen, you know? I was like, yeah, I guess. I guess that's what it was like. So, um, no, yeah, I, I like the first one quite a bit. And the second one, it will always be trite to me now. So It's burned into your mind. Yeah. I heard Steve Zahn is in this uh, new one. That's pretty cool. Uh, I didn't. I, know, I did not notice him, but he probably I think he's the bad there. ape. Oh, he's from so what he, I hear. Oh, I see. But uh, I like Steve Zahn, man. I think uh, he's a good actor, and he deserves some more roles mm-hmm. than what he's got. So, Good gravy. Yeah. Good gravy, baby. All right. Well, I think that's it. Uh, right. We've got some movies to talk about. Sure do. Yep. So, hey, folks, after the break, we're going to start off by talking about Flesh for Frankenstein from 1973, directed by Paul I can't breathe! 
And we're back. And our first film in our double header, talking about these Andy Warhol-produced Paul Morrissey movies about Dracula and Frankenstein, is Flesh for Frankenstein from 1973. So a synopsis here, courtesy of our friends at Wikipedia. Baron Vaughn Frankenstein neglects his duties toward his wife's sister, Katrine, as he is obsessed with creating a perfect Serbian race to obey his commands, beginning by assembling a perfect male and female from parts of corpses. The doctor's sublimation of his sexual urges by his powerful urge for domination is shown when he utilizes the surgical wounds of his female creation to satisfy his lust. He is satisfied with the inadequate reproductive urges of his current male creation and seeks a head donor with a greater libido. He also repeatedly exhibits an intense interest that the creature's nasum have a correctly Serbian shape. As it happens, a suitably randy farmhand, Nicholas, leaving a local brothel along with his sexually repressed friend, brought here in an unsuccessful attempt to dissuade him from entering a monastery, are spotted and waylaid by the doctor and his henchman, Otto. Mistakenly assuming that the prospective monk is also suitably for stud duty, they take his head for mm. use on the male creature. Not knowing these behind-the-scene details, Nicholas survives and is summoned by Katrine to the castle, where they form an agreement that he will gratify her unsatisfied carnal appetites. Under the control of the doctor, the male and female creatures are seated for dinner with the castle's residents, but the male creature shows no signs of recognition of his friend as he serves the baron and his family. Nicholas realizes at this point that something is awry, but himself uh, pretends not to recognize his friend's face until he can investigate further. After a falling out with Katrine, who is merely concerned with her own needs, Nicholas goes snooping in the laboratory and is captured by the doctor. Frankenstein muses about using his new acquisition to replace the head of his creature, who is still showing no signs of libido. Nevertheless, Katrine is rewarded for betraying Nicholas by being granted use of the creature for erotic purposes, but is killed during a bout of overly vigorous copulation. <laughs> Meanwhile, mm-hmm. Otto repeats the doctor's sexual exploits with the female creature, resulting in her graphic disembowelment. The Baron returns and, enraged, does away with Otto. When he attempts to have the male creature eliminate Nicholas, however, the remnants of his friend's personality uh, re- rebel and the doctor is killed in gruesome fashion. The creature, believing he is better off dead, then disembowels himself. The doctor's children, Eric and Monica, then enter the laboratory, pick up a pair of scalpels, and proceed to turn the wheel of the crane that is holding the farmhand in midair. And that's how the movie ends. I just wanted to share that because I found that like so awkwardly written and like doesn't capture at all the spirit mm-hmm. of this film. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, but it's like I'm always amazing to me, like someone be like, I'm gonna look up this movie, and then they go and read that and be like, oh, what <laughs> this doesn't isn't like the movie doesn't play whatsoever yeah like that doesn't play doesn't play so um i thought that we would start 
this uh, conversation about these Morrissey movies by kind of going back a little and just talking about Paul Morrissey and his relationship to Andy Warhol because uh, the American title for this film was Andy Warhol's Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing that is lost in in its current form is that this film was made for 3D, um, which explains 3D. some of the, Yeah. Uh, that explains like kind of those weird shots where like people are holding things toward the screen and like yeah. things are like hanging like weirdly in the foreground. But yeah, the best way the movie was shot the way it was like in that like super wide, like the two point uh, three thirty five to one uh, framing because that's how 3D would have been shot for. Um, but they ran out right. of money to do it with uh, Blood for Dracula. But mm, okay. but that's neither here nor there. Um, so as you might have heard, Andy Warhol was an artist. Um, in hmm. New York City, mm-hmm. um, and he became somewhat famous. Uh, a little old, bit. Old Warhol. So he, you know, amongst his silkscreen prints and stuff like that, that other people would do, and he would kind of finish up on and get kind of uh, credit for. Uh, Warhol started mm-hmm. making films, and I put films in quotes, uh, quotations, uh, in the mid-60s uh, because these films were essentially him just setting up a camera in the direction of the thing he was shooting. He mm-hmm. would turn it on, and he'd just kind of go away or look the other way while the thing just filmed. Um, so he'd make films with titles like Blowjob, <laughs> Empire, uh, one called Taylor Mead's Ass, and those titles Ooh. are very telling of what those type of films were about um so i mean he would film uh in one particular one say if blowjob he would film the uh, actor's face as they received a blowjob for the duration mm-hmm. of the blowjob um or he would film the empire state building for eight hours continuously and that was yeah. that was the actual film itself um right. and i guess like even like Andy Warhol never actually even watched these films after he made them. Like they're just kind of like art objects. Um, Morrissey himself just said like he was making these for like provocation more than anything else. Just like the idea, like the audacity of making an eight hour long film or like a 12 hour long film that like no one's ever going to watch in its entirety. Cause it's just, it's one shot. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, you just don't watch things like this unless there's something wrong with you. Um, yeah. Yeah. But then, so, so we started off doing this, um, and then characterization in like kind of what we call film conventions started entering the picture uh, when he started making mm-hmm. films like the Chelsea girls or bike boy. And that was when Paul Morrissey became involved with the actual filmmaking. So, I mean, he would, so Andy Warhol's like job still was like, he would like turn on the camera, but I mean, he couldn't tell you anything about filmmaking, but like Paul Morrissey was like learning this stuff. And so he was doing the lighting. He'd actually organize the productions. He'd get the actors together. He told them what to do. And I mean, Andy was just sort of there. Um, so the uh, as time went on, Paul Morrissey just kind of like he would he'd get the money from Warhol to make more films, and they'd basically be like Andy Warhol films that he was co-directing. Um, so what are the kind of films that Paul Morrissey made prior to these? Mm-hmm. Uh, let's take a look at a film called San Diego Surf from 1968, and its plot: Mr. and Mrs. Mead are a married couple renting a seaside mansion to a group of young male surfers. Their daughter is pregnant and on the hunt for a husband. Mr. Mead, who is gay, tries to pawn her off to one of the surfers. Meanwhile, Viva wants a divorce from her husband, who wants a surfer of his own. Tom, mm-hmm. a surfer, uh, is invigiled by Mr. Mead to a urinate on him. In a close-up, oh. Mr. Mead receives Tom's offering ecstatically, after which he comments, I'm a real surfer now. He is probably <laughs> most well-known for his trilogy. So, 
I mean, so he's most probably like so Morrissey is most well known for his trilogy of films made in New York uh, within like the factory environment. And those films are called Flesh, Trash, Heat. Um, I've never seen any of those three because they're not available um, through legitimate means. Uh, mm-hmm. And they star the likes of Joe D'Alessandro, who you got to know watching these movies, especially his butt. Um, and like oh. uh, other like uh, people, like someone like Candy Darling. Um, it's actually a good uh, snapshot of this world is watching the movie I Shot Andy Warhol, where a lot of people playing these people show up. Mm-hmm. Um, one note I'll throw out there regarding the first film of The Batch Flesh was apparently it was made as a like film to undercut John Schlesinger's film Midnight Cowboy, uh, which was mm. a mo- which so both movies are actually about male prostitutes in New York, but uh, Schlesinger was making his film and he used uh, the factory in a fairly famous scene, I guess, where he just like went in and shot stuff, filmed with actors there, and I guess Warhol thought he was trying to poach from his factory, even though like I don't really think Warhol probably would have given a crap, <laughs> right? But I mean, Flesh has a very very similar kind of thing going on that Midnight Cowboy did, but Midnight mm-hmm. Cowboy is the movie we still talk about um yes sir, yes, sir. so um morsi just made movies kind of like uh, i was describing with san diego surf uh mm-hmm. he headed off to italy and i'm assuming with warhol money and he filmed these two films flesher frankenstein and blood for dracula um yeah uh one thing i'll throw out there too is the uncredited screenwriter for this film uh tonino guerrera he also co-wrote another creep feature that we've watched called amarcord really yeah <laughs> so that's where the butts come from that's where the butt love comes and or is it, was, yeah uh other little thing i'll throw out there and then we can i guess start talking about these movies uh sure. is the gore effects were courtesy of uh another friend of the show carlos rambaldi who i've brought up uh several occasions who you know created uh, such effects as the et from E.T. and mm. uh, special effects in Dune, um, movies like Didn't Bay of just Blood. Die? Yes, he did. Okay. But yeah, he's a, a he was a man of vision and made lots of cool stuff. Oh, and uh, Possession, of course. Ooh, yeah, for that like salamander slug. Yeah, thing. that thing. <laughs> that thing. That thing. Whatever it is. Yeah. I heard that was what they uh, E.T. was originally going to be, but it was too sexy. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing I'll throw out there, I guess, too, is, uh, according to Morrissey, uh, Andy Warhol was an incompetent who knew nothing about camera work or editing or direction. In almost every interview with Morrissey since he permanently parted ways with Warhol in the late seventies, he's regarded Warhol with the best gentle pity and an outright contempt. Um, one story he has held firm on is that he cast and directed all the films, then let Warhol operate the camera and put his name on uh, and his money towards the finished product. Uh, to keep up with Warhol's celebrated status as a filmmaker, which no doubt helped bankroll Morrissey's own career. Mm-hmm. Um, that's off a... There's a good little article about this. Uh, by Sam Weisberg's got a blog. It's, his, it's called Hidden Films, and he has a whole write-up about like what the relationship was between Warhol and Morrissey. Um, right. And yeah, so RJ, mm-hmm. I've rambled on enough. I have a fairly good idea of what you think of these films, but let's start with Flesh of Frankenstein. What did you think? Hey, Jarrett. Yeah. I don't like this movie. Yep. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll just leave. Okay. There's a few things I do like. I think the gore is super good. Yeah. When they're just picking dudes' heads up and the blood comes out forever. <laughs> awesome yeah that stuff is so cool but i mean obviously 
Um, I actually liked the ending. Yes. Where it's just like bodies keep piling up on top and on top. And then it leaves you in such like a, like a, just like a dark, like sad ending with the kids. It, I thought that was awesome yeah. for some reason. Uh, but then there's the rest of the movie. <laughs> And the rest of the movie, I am not a fan of. Uh, it's fucking, it's all over the place. It's fluffy. It's disjointed. I'm like, I don't know. It's just hard to get a gauge on stuff. Like things are happening and then some scenes are like so boring. And then other scenes are weird. And like, I usually like weird stuff, but it's just, I was like, what is the point of all this shit, man? Like I... I was pretty much this whole movie. Uh, I was wondering, I was like, why is this again? Two weeks in a row now. Why is this a Criterion movie? I don't get it. Just because Warhol's got his name on it? Fuck that. I don't uh, even like Andy Warhol. I, I don't even think it has anything. Like, yeah, the Warhol thing has nothing to do with it, really. Yeah, but that's how they sell it, right? Well, that's how they sold it when it came out, for yeah. sure. I mean, that was the whole idea was to get his yeah. name on there and it's pulp. It's like you're going to get his take on Dracula. Mm-hmm. And Frankenstein, that sounds amazing. But, I mean, they're Paul mm. Morrissey films. Yeah, correct. No. Um, and to be honest, that would drive – it It would drive me away. I, I don't really like Andy Warhol. One of my most hated quotes ever is Andy Warhol who – I think it's like, I think everyone should be nice to everyone. It's something like that. That makes me so mad. It's like, <laughs> shut up, Andy Warhol. <laughs> fucking guy. Like Fucking guy. Fucking guy. Um. I don't know, man. It's it's hard to talk. Like I have, I actually do have a cup, uh, like a lot of notes about just individual things. But yeah, the reason I didn't like it is I don't know. It's it's just kind of it's very all over the place. Like it it seems like it was it's barely a movie. I don't know. Like uh, like they're working off a script. Like it seems like it's a very it was somebody's like first movie, first time making stuff, first time writing a script. Uh, first time anyone was acting in it, like stuff like that. Like that doesn't bother me either. Like low budget stuff can still be really good, even mm-hmm. with like bad actors. But for some reason, nothing in this really clicked with me. I don't really like the take on Franken- Frankenstein. I think like over the course of Frank the Frankenstein franchise, somewhere along like along the line people really started to go after that like necrophilia aspect to it which like makes sense like i get it like it's a it's an interesting take like yeah this guy probably would be a weirdo who's like really into dead bodies Mm -hmm. but i also don't i also don't like it as much as maybe just a guy who's like in the pursuit of like greatness because like that's how i always viewed frankenstein was like he's trying to do something amazing and the motivation in this movie is so fucking bizarre. It's like trying to make Serbian a Serbian race with this fucking waterhead dude that I think is a god for some reason, but he's just got a gigantic melon. Like, I don't know, man. Uh, the sister really bugs me. Um, she had like a sagittal crest or something, like a fucking prosimian ape coming out of there. I think it's because she shaves her eyebrows. I don't know why. Right. Like, is she so? I watched these with Andrea and she's like, are these people all porn stars? And I was like, probably like, I know they like not Udo Kerr, but I don't, Here, I was like, yeah. I know they can't act. Well, but. Joe, Joe Del Sandro, uh, he's like, he, well, he's like the, the factory guy. I mean, mm-hmm. he was, he's in everything. Um, and I mean like the reason why is cause just like visually 
is about it. Yeah. Because, I mean, like, uh, the one thing that uh, we can talk about now is just, uh, I don't know, like, his, like, that New York accent of his. Like, I mean, so, like, it's, like, completely obviously intentional the anachronistic yeah. aspect of this like just like mm-hmm. new yak accent guy talking in like these uh, period piece uh, european movies um right. like it's just like yeah there's no qualms it's, it's about ridiculous. that it's ridiculous yeah. sure so i mean if you get i mean cat okay. so this is like where um i'm kind of i kind of like this movie like this one um because I don't know, it's got a re- it's got so many really great set pieces. I love his, I love the Frankenstein lab. I think yeah. like, that's the one thing. So I, I watched this movie for the very first time just like four years ago, and mm-hmm. um, I remember it being like there's stuff about it that I liked, um, like the gore and whatnot. Um, yeah. But I really love some of the set pieces, like in particular this time around, like the dining room scenes. I think are really oh, yeah. like great looking, um, yeah. and then like all the stuff that's set in that laboratory. It's like super iconic. Like it's kind of uh, amazing. Mm-hmm. But there's like all the stuff that's in between that is fairly like tossable. Like it's kind of like, just like happens vaguely. Like I, I had no yep. sense of that stuff at all. And I kind of forgot how much stuff actually happens in the laboratory. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, it plays out like, uh, like theater, like it's very staged. Um, right. which kind of goes to this thing where, um, I was reading this interview that, uh, Paul Morrissey did with, uh, it's like Jonathan Rosenbaum back in like 1975. Mm-hmm. And just like in one of the things they're talking about how, um, like how he views acting. And I was, after I read that before I watched these movies and then like I was watching the movies and I was like, man, this acting is really bad. Like it's super mm-hmm. wooden. And I'm like, well, obviously everyone notices this. Like people are, there's no way you couldn't tell that this acting was like not good. But so I'm mm-hmm. like, okay, so it's obviously intentional. Um, and then like I read this and Paul Morrissey's whole thing about acting is it's about like, it's all about the visuals more than anything else. Like um, it's all about, the presence of the actor it's the look of the actor more than um anything else and like uh like kind of what we expect from acting and it's about like just like characters and how they look like udo kier kind mm-hmm. of embodies that because i mean he's so uh mannered in this like i'm not sure if that's the right word for it but he right. he's it's so stylized um but i guess like when you when you went into this movie did you know you were watching a comedy did you think you were going to be watching like essentially a comedy? Cause that's what, no. It, yeah. That's that. We, we figured it out, but yeah. well, uh, you, I didn't realize Cause you start laughing at, yeah, you start laughing yeah. at this stuff. Like mm-hmm. the, the, the taped over ass and genitals that like the corpses yeah, have. <laughs> that, that was really funny. I, I was like, what the fuck is that stuff? Yeah. Well, it's just like, Oh, we can't show that. <laughs> like like yeah. it's, it's funny. Like that stuff. And like, yeah, like the, there's like, it's, so it's intentionally campy. Right. And yeah. I mean, I think camp is really dangerous to do especially nowadays because oh, yeah. it, it can just turn people right off um and uh, yeah so i mean i think this movie's like I, paul morrissey set out to make this movie exactly how it is like everything's mm-hmm. intentional i don't think he failed in any way making this movie but it is definitely not a movie that's going to be to the tastes of the vast majority of people who go to movies and actually like uh, this movie visually. And I don't know if, I'm not sure if it's just like, cause it's a similar film stock and it's also because it's like shot in Italy, but like this movie has that Salo vibe to it. Um, yeah. Uh, it's like the tones, like the colors, yeah. the colors of the rooms and stuff like that. And then even the lab, like, uh, cause I thought the lab was really cool too, but I noticed that like the walls kind of the tiling and it's like that, yeah. Uh, it's like a beigey kind of thing. Like it does feel like a dank 
Salo type of deal. Yeah. Um, yep. One thing that like actually I'm surprised it doesn't get mentioned a lot, but this movie is actually on the video nasties list of the because the, of the necrophilia well the, the big one that people always make the comment about uh but what what could land you on the video nasties list is if you yeah. have blood on breasts that does you in and this movie most definitely has blood on boobs <laughs> why i don't get that it's just like uh, the people's like uh like the, the censor's idea of like well if people see blood on breasts it'll encourage violence and murder and it's just that's just what they think like that's just always been the accusation but uh, and this, that's silly it, oh yeah, it's silly, all right. But yeah, this movie is on that video nasties list with a bunch of like other like. And for a movie that's like, it's a comedy. They, I I recommend people take a look at the video nasties list because it's mm. got some absurd things on there. Um, I'd be pushed more into murder by seeing those people use that fucking miniature pony to pull a carriage. That little <laughs> guy doesn't have the, the strength or the endurance to keep up that thing when there's like all those normal size horses around. Mm-hmm. I saw that at the start and I was like, what the fuck are they doing here? That's so impractical. Mm-hmm. Like, um, yeah, <laughs> I saw that. And then, uh, yeah, we knew it was a comedy right when uh, Andrea called him Danny Zuko. She's like, what is it? Danny Zuko coming in from New York. Hey. Uh, and he's like. He looks at the guy. He's like, you know, we've been friends our whole life. And the other guy's like, uh, friends all, all life. Uh, very nice. <laughs> like that guy can't speak English at all. And she's like, what the fuck? The accents are all over the place. Oh. I, that, like that is funny. Yeah. But. Yeah. So it's just like, yeah, there's, it's all intentional, I guess. But yeah, it's like right. th- th- those, those decisions can definitely, I mean, not like surprisingly at all, like people off because it's like what is this like because it's like is this enjoyable at all like especially like the bits where there's like nothing like exciting happening um and then there's like lots of endless scenes of just um uh, joe's what? joe's butt and just like just mm-hmm. just swiveling around <laughs> yeah the in this one and particularly in the next movie the moves he does i don't understand how He's accomplishing he's, anything. Yeah, it's it doesn't seem natural. So mm. I don't know if he's like especially gifted and he can do things in a way that normal people can't. But I've never seen moves like that before. Yeah. Um, so here, here's a note to myself that I uh, made was, uh, hey, RJ, we got ourselves some necrophilia up here in Creepsville. And it's about yeah. damn time because when that happened, I'm like, oh, RJ's going to love that. Uh, yeah, seen... that and Udo here, like fucking arm deep in the, that body. Yeah, well, that you... that didn't bother me as much as uh, I was way more grossed out when the the uh, Igor was licking the stitches and stuff. Oh yeah, I've got I've got a note here. Otto's tongue wagging and just going oh, yeah. to town. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, because my question for you was, have you ever tongued surgical wounds of an undead sex zombie? Not recently. Okay. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, and then you get the amazing line of "You've got to fuck life by the gallbladder." Yes, to no death you have to fuck life by the gallbladder. I think is what I, I wrote it down oh, yeah. as soon as I heard it, and I was like, yeah. "Oh my god!" Yeah. Udo has a lot of good lines in this movie. Oh, he's got like, good lines between both films. Both. Uh, I have a lot in the other ones too, but uh, yeah. in this movie, he had one where uh, he said two girls. One man, he must be very powerful. Oh yeah. Talking talking about the brothel, and then he's talking about he's like those terrible women with their large breasts. Oh. It's like what are you? It's like what is he even fucking talking about? Like I don't get it. Uh, yeah. Um. Yeah, that was funny. Uh, there's a scene where um, the lady, the sister, 
is like talking to the beefcake and yeah. she's like she's like you know in the castle we have fancy toilets and you should use these every day <laughs> Me and Andrew looked at each other, and we were like, "What?" It's like, why is she telling him to use the toilet every day? Like, well, what is? Because he's a poor peasant who's been shitting in holes and shacks, I guess, for his I, whole I, life. the The idea of indoor plumbing is fresh and brand new. I guess maybe that's mm-hmm. like such a subtle thing that it's like it's amazing that they took the time to think about. It's like you know, this guy probably never sat on a toilet before. Isn't that crazy? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I made a list of some of the uh, 3D objects that get held out toward the audience. We get internal organs. Oh, yeah. We get a lizard. Yeah. Uh, we get the giant scissor clamp things. Yeah. And I think the other one, big one, was the uh, when, when Udo Kier gets stabbed through with the giant spear. Yeah. Um, and it, it hits, like, his liver or something. Yeah. And then that comes into the audience. That's right. In, That's into our cool. space. Yeah. Exactly. Um so uh, one thing I will mention too is, uh, so Paul Morrissey, uh, you might not get this sense from the film, but he is quite a conservative right-wing kind of guy, um, mm. which really puts him kind of at odds with sort of the Andy Warhol spirit, right? <laughs> which like people wouldn't associate with either of those things. But um, mm. the, yeah, I mean, there's something about, uh, if you think about what Morrissey's values would be in that sense, and this mm-hmm. actually uh, brings us to uh, the uh, gentleman who wrote the liner notes and uh, co-spoke uh, the commentary track on this film, uh, Maurice Yakawar. Um, and he, in his essay that I was reading uh, for it, he just talks about how there's, um, I don't know, the, the whole this whole depiction of like se- sexual liberation with mm-hmm. these characters, it, it's actually a bad thing. Um, like he's against the permissiveness of these characters. Uh, and so they're all depicted as degenerates, incest yeah. lovers, their children are of incest and they're all about just having sex all the time. Um, like the only good character, uh, he gets his head cut off and gets strapped onto the Frankenstein body and he doesn't mm-hmm. want to live in this world. He doesn't want to become a, one of these degenerates and he just tears his own guts apart instead of, yep. uh, in living in this world of, um, yeah, I don't know, sexploits and sure. whatever. So, I mean, there's like that aspect of it's like where it's painting the people like these like romantic, this like this literature that comes out of like a romantic uh, uh, legacy and saying, no, this is where like everything in society went bad was because of these uh, assholes, these libertines mm-hmm. and these people wanting to have sex with corpses and with one another instead of uh, making society better. Because it's like a totally different take of Frankenstein. It's like, right. no, he's just a sex pervert rather than like someone who's like trying to better science or like embolden man or whatever. It's like completely different yeah. take. Like there's no like negative negativity about the idea of bringing back the dead. It's mm-hmm. more like, what are you bringing the back the dead for? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, it misses that kind of aspect of that's like probably really important to the whole idea of uh, the Frankenstein story. It just kind of takes the tropes of it and it basically makes it look like a hammer horror movie uh, mm-hmm. with, with a thick paint looking red stuff like it's like super over the top uh it it uses like the period piece sort of stuff like look um 
and it just and you, and it's too actually between this and Blood for Dracula, you have like Udo Kier kind of doing like the he's like the Christopher Lee, he's like the Peter Cushing like right. character. It's like the same actor comes over, or like Joe D'Alessandro, he's in both movies as well. There's like those crossovers yep. of uh, people, and they're kind of doing the Hammer thing, um, mm-hmm. and doing these sort of like yeah, like kind of like these movies are full on camp, whereas the Hammer horror movies never intended to be like that. They're just kind of genre spook shows there to make money whereas this movie had i don't think really any intention of making any money they're just like uh, movies to be watched as like art objects but it's like they're so trashy and so campy that i just don't know what the audience for it is um mm-hmm. and like i mean like you said like maybe going back to like long good friday it's kind of like what role does this film play in like the criterion collection um, they're, I don't they're, know. They're 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 an odd fit. I won't deny that. <laughs> I st- I I don't know what it means. Like after watching that, I was like, man, maybe I should rewatch Long Good Friday. Maybe because I was like, maybe that's maybe that'll stick out a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know, man. Like, I don't know. It's not like this movie's bad or anything. I just don't think it's very good. Hmm. There, there are things I like, um, but there are a lot of things I don't like as well. Right. I'm just going to mention two other things that I thought sure. were funny. Uh, when he brings up uh, what he calls the zombies yes. to the dinner table, and they got fucking like baguettes like in their armpits and like baguette corsets. I thought that was really funny. Hmm. It's like braces and stuff, but they look like sausages or like a big loaf of bread. Um, so that was fun. And then uh, this the depiction of uh, oral sex in this movie is fucking insane. It has the slurpiest, oh, yeah. squeakiest sounds, and it goes on forever. And it's like, it's like that's not. Wait a minute. You're like, what's happening? And then it shows like the lady, and she's just like sucking on the guy's uh, elbow or his armpit. Armpit. And it's like. Yep. And you're just like, my god. <laughs> so that was gross. Um, <laughs> And that's all I really have to say about this. I don't know if uh, if uh, you you did quite a bit of research, so I don't know if you got some more yeah. in the bank there. Well, uh, good thing you mentioned that because um, in my research, uh, which consisted of reading the liner notes that are on the Criterion.com website, since I don't actually have Criterion copies of either of these movies, um, right. I came across the Maurice Yakawar uh, little articles on it and then i got to the very bottom of the little write-up and it kind of tells you like about the person and i saw that he was from like our own neck of the woods here mm-hmm. in southern alberta and he actually wrote an entire book on the films of paul morrissey which was like ridiculous to me so mm-hmm. i thought hey maybe i should check on facebook and just see if this guy's around and sure enough he's online and mm-hmm. uh after about a day of thinking about it i decided to reach out to him and see if he was uh, interested in perhaps uh, granting an interview, talking about the movies and just talking about, um, I mean, his interests. Because, I mean, he was an English professor turned um, film professor uh, starting right. in like the 60s uh, when there was no film schools in Canada. And he actually played a part in founding uh, the first film studies program in Canada at Brock University out in Ontario. And oh, he, cool. he obliged. And uh, I talked to him just the other day. Uh, we yeah. had a nice chat, and uh, I guess now we'll play that interview, just talking about mm-hmm. how he 
got approached by Criterion to do a commentary track because he got to do that as well. Wrote, wrote liner notes, and this is back in 1996. Um, and actually, he was also involved with the uh, commentary track for Invasion of the Body Snatchers on Laserdisc back in 1986. Hmm. Um, so we'll just see what he has to say for himself. All right. All right. So this is uh, Maurice Yakawar and me from a day ago. So I guess like my next question, I guess, was, I mean, so you wrote a book on Paul Morrissey, uh, the films of Paul Morrissey. So I'm just kind of curious, um, like, how did you discover uh, these Paul Morrissey films, these Andy Warhol produced things early on? And then well, I, I've, I've been interested in in the um, the um, underground film scene in the 60s and 70s in New York. And so I did have that that early interest. Uh, when I was still at Brock, I was uh, nominated to sit on the Ontario Film Review Board, and I put in, I think, four or five years on that. Um, the liberal government at the time had decided to shift the emphasis from uh, banning to classifying. Um, and I remember one film that came up for the panel I was on was uh, one of the, uh, the, the, the Flesh trilogy. Right. And I, I hadn't seen it before, um, and I found myself in the position of being the only person arguing for its approval um, to the standard eye of the panel. It was a piece of ribald junk, right. but I had a sense that there was something more going on in it than that, and I argued for its approval and happened to carry the day. And just after I'd started Thinking about uh, the the Morrissey film, I got an invitation from someone who was general editor for a series of auteur studies at Cambridge University Press, and this was an invitation to propose subjects for volumes in that series, fresh off um, an analysis of um, a Warhol movie, I proposed Morrissey and, and got the commission and set about watching all the Morrissey films I could and writing the book on them. What year was this about? I have no idea. Okay. <laughs> <It's> okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was a long time ago. A long time ago. Perfect. <laughs> um, I met Morrissey. Uh, he's the only filmmaker I've ever written on that I did meet. Okay. I, I went to New York and interviewed him. And we carried on a correspondence for a while, and, and he was really welcoming my approach because uh, nobody had taken him seriously before. Nobody had, had uh, suggested that he was producing substantial works of art with a moral purpose and, and with this, the sensitivity and cohesion that you, you uh, find in an artist. Uh, so he encouraged my, my work on him, um, and as a result of my doing that book, he um, persuaded Criterion to have me do the commentary or write pieces on the uh, Laserdisc versions of, of uh, Blood for Dracula and Flesh for Frankenstein. Right. Yeah, and so that was around 96 that those got released. And I noticed, too, that because yeah. uh, I think when I first uh, contacted you, I didn't realize that uh, you had done commentary tracks. Cause I had just seen the uh, liner note essays that are on the uh -huh. website. And then so I've gone and listened to the commentary tracks. But I also noticed that you had done a commentary for them back with Invasion of the Body Snatchers. That was the first one. Yeah, and that yeah. was like in 1986, I guess. Yeah. 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 
So I uh, think oh. one of the first ones that that criterion did. I, I later learned that it was some it, it was somehow controversial. Oh, and I don't know why or how. I don't think I'd said anything controversial, but I think it may have been that I was doing the kind of close textual analysis that even Criterion was not used to giving films. Well, because that was fairly early on, too, because like, I think it's in the first 10 spine numbers of when they started yeah. doing it. So, I mean, it's like really early on. Yeah. Um, and they were just kind of like, I actually just read, uh, there's a nice little uh, article in a book called like The DVD and the Study of Film. And um, it just like kind of talks about like how uh, the guy who started Criterion, uh, like his whole deal was he was really interested in multimedia and the idea of like really breaking down like film as like or anything down into its component parts and so it was just a matter of like discovering laser discs you could put all this material on and then yeah. it was like by accident like that commentary tracks were discovered because or like the idea of a commentary track because they were talking to one film expert and he just started talking about movies and they're like well couldn't we just record this and put it on as another track and they went yeah i guess so <laughs> So I guess you're right. You're kind of at the like very early stages of like the foundations of commentary tracks as we know them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, That's yeah. what you get by by having the sense to get born early. You, <laughs> you get to be in on the start of things. That's so you, right. <laughs> you don't have to be that good so long as you're early. <laughs> so how did you uh, initially? So if I don't know, this is going back like this is 1985, 86. Uh, like how did they, why did they approach you for Invasion of the Body Snatchers or like, um, like I, I'm just curious like how they were going about contacting just people. Do you remember at all? Um, yeah. Um, I a friend of I was living in St. Catharines. Ontario, and a friend who was a film teacher at um, um, the BCIT in Vancouver was um, a friend of Bob Stein, who was the producer of the first yep. uh, laser discs for Criterion. And my friend pro uh, suggested me um, for something, and they were looking for someone for that film, and I had a line on it, and so that's how I got it. I, I knew a friend of a friend, and he knew the producer of that particular disc. So uh, Nigel Kazmakis, the woman who produced it and recorded me on the thing, has, has remained a very dear, close friend of mine ever since. Oh, great. <laughs> Um, so yeah, like, so when I was listening to the Flesh of Frankenstein, Blood for Dracula commentary, the way that it's put together, uh, it's actually one of my least favorite ways they do it, where they take multiple sources and they compose, they compile them all into like, th like separate sound bites, even though all three people are in separate rooms. Um, uh -huh. so like, did you record like a full length commentary at that time and yeah. then they edited it down? Okay. I think I did. Yeah. I know I did for Invasion of the Body Snatchers right. and I think would have done for those as well. Because I certainly wasn't working in collaboration with any other commentators. Right, for sure. So, yeah, they would have recorded a whole thing and then they just compiled, I guess, the yeah. best thing that they could do, flow, uh, make creating that flow and whatnot. They, they kept the parts of my commentary that were least embarrassing to me. <laughs> for sure. I think I'd put it that way. That's yeah, that, that's always uh, thoughtful of them. <laughs> it is. I'm grateful. Um, so, uh, uh, I guess the other thing is like, when was the last time you watched uh, either Flesh for Frankenstein or Blood for Dracula? It's been 10 years, maybe 15. Okay. I should. Um, <laughs> I, I guarantee if I watch it, I won't, I won't turn on the commentary. <laughs> um, yeah. Do you, do you own either copies of those films? In your I own? do. I've got DVDs of as many Morrisseys as, as I could find. Anything that's available kind of in North yeah. America and or I whatever. Uh, 
because I may want to refresh my memory of them. I may want to do something else. I'm, I may be, I don't know, somebody out of the blue may invite me to do a course on Paul Morrissey. And right. so I want anybody listening? Yeah. So, <laughs> so I thought I'd, I'd, I'd keep the discs for just such eventualities. I just got the disc for Madame Wang um, within the last three weeks, and I have absolutely no memory of that film. I haven't a clue what I said about it or what happens mm. in it. And I've been meaning to run the disc, but I still haven't gotten around to do it. This is what happens when you're retired. You have all this absolute freedom to do anything you want, and so you find yourself con continually delaying and delaying. But I will get around to it. Right. Uh, so are you a uh, Criterion collection collector at all? No, not really. I've, I've got quite a few. Right. Um, when I moved to Victoria, I had to reduce my my um, library significantly. So my DVD collection shrank from about 4,000 to 1,000. <laughs> uh, and, and so I, I had to make some hard decisions there. Right. Do you have that same problem that we all have where you kind of like you have all these movies, but you're just too busy watching new movies that you'd never go back and watch the old stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there's no greater delight than digging up an old favorite. And, yep. and I, I try to watch The Searchers once a year. It occurred to me today that I really got to watch The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance again. It's been a few years. And as I remember, the, the uh, election convention scene in that film it's it's very much like the rhetoric and madness and, and <laughs> like democracy that still pervades the American election scene. Yeah, it, it, there's something quintessentially corrupt about even the idealized process of American democracy. And Ford had his finger on it there with the John Carradine blabbermouth windbag, and uh, the even the idealist who gets elected is getting elected on a false pretense. Right. He's the man who shot Liberty Valance, but he's got the fame of the man who shot Liberty Valance, and so he's the celebrity apprentice who gets the job. <laughs> yeah, the one the, the one movie that's always been on my mind this last year during this election cycle was uh, Face in the Crowd. Uh, oh, yeah. That's <laughs> on. Well, yeah. I mean, it, yeah, that movie is just like, actually, like I think it was like, because that movie got brought up, I think, during uh, the Bush years always, and then it's like, oh, well, we've outdone that now, so. <laughs> it, and notice how we always say, well, it can't get any worse than this. And, and this is what makes me believe there's a God. <laughs> every time we say it can't get any worse than this, you hear this, hmm, from upstairs. And oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Watch me. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you have it. Um, I think that pretty well sums up Flesh for Frankenstein. Uh, we've got mm -hmm. some more Morrissey to talk about, though. And I guess we might as well launch into that with some Blood for Dracula here after the break. I'm a vampire, babe
You must leave Romania and travel far away. Maybe to England, maybe to France. But I've been to Italy. Why Italy? The Italian people will be impressed by your title. And you can find words in it. It must be tonight. The girls are beautiful. They look so pure. Is she? She is. You must come with us to the count. is killing me. I just want my coffin back. And we're back. Still talking about that Paul Morrissey guy in his film, Blood for Dracula from 1974. Uh, another synopsis from our friends at Wikipedia. In the first years of the 1920s, a sickly and dying Count Dracula, who, as a vampire, must drink virgin blood to survive, travels from Transylvania to Italy, following his servant Anton's plan and thinking he will be more likely to find a virgin in a Catholic country. At the same time, all of Dracula's family has vanished because of two reasons, the lack of virgins in their hometown and how the family's reputation prevents any normal family from choosing to bring women to the renowned castle. Shortly after arriving in Italy, Dracula befriends Marchese de Fiore, uh, an impecunious Italian landowner who, with a lavish mm. estate falling into decline, is willing to marry off one of his four daughters to the wealthy aristocrat. Um, of the four daughters, two regularly enjoy the sexual services of Mario, the estate handyman, a proud peasant and staunch Marxist, who believes that the socialist revolution will happen soon in his country. The youngest and eldest daughters are virgins, the eldest is thought too plain to be offered for marriage, and is past her prime, and the youngest is only 14 years old, portrayed by a 23-year-old woman, uh, Dionisio, something like that. Uh, mm -hmm. Dracula obtains assurances that all the daughters are virgins, and drinks the blood of two who are considered marriageable. However, their tainted blood reveals to him the truth and makes him even weaker. Nevertheless, he is able to turn the two girls into his telepathic slaves. Mm -hmm. Soon after, uh, the Marchese de Fiore uh, travels out of Italy to pay his great debts. Mario discovers that Dracula is a vampire and what he has done to the Diofiore sisters. When he rea realizes the danger Dracula poses to the youngest daughter, he rapes her to achieve her protection. Mario warns De Fiora's wife, uh, La Marchesa De Fiora, about Dracula's plan. Meanwhile, Dracula has drunk the blood of the eldest daughter, turning her into a vampire and regaining strength. Uh, La Marchesa confronts and is stabbed by Anton, whom she shoots and kills before dying. Mario dismembers Dracula with an axe and kills him and the eldest De Fiora daughter with a stake, becoming the de facto master and manager of the estate. That's the movie. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So, RJ, what did you think of Blood for Dracula? Well, I'm going to lay it out like this for you, Jer. All yeah. right? Uh, I actually thought this one was all right. Yeah? I thought it was a lot better than the Frankenstein. Interesting. The Frankenstein. Uh, I still don't think it's great. Sure. 
but uh, I enjoyed watching it a little bit more. Not at first. The first like 20 minutes, I was like, oh, man. I was really not, just dreading not again. It. Yeah, I was just like, no more of this, please. And then uh, I think where it really picked up for me where is I think the idea of like Dracula staying in someone else's house, just hunting like the women in the house is like re- like a really fun idea. Mm-hmm. It'd be a, it'd be a nice like isolated little horror story. I don't know why, but um, yeah, it started out and I was like, oh man, because there's like this weird upbeat pan flute music, and then it's like them driving and it's like just a wacky Dracula road trip. And I was like, man, what is this movie? And then he's like, so he's like the mopey, uh, like a mopey ass Dracula. He's like, why can't I just die? He's Mm -hmm. like, I don't like the food they serve here. All these vegetables. And it's just like, and he's like moping around, like kicking it, uh, like kicking sand or like dirt and stuff like that. And you're just like, oh my God. Um, But I don't know. Uh, Like I said, I think there were certain parts that I, just the aspect of him in the house kind of just silently trying to hunt these people I thought was pretty cool. The virgin blood stuff is a little bit, eh. But, I mean, whatever. It's a hook. It, it, there's a point there. And it makes it, when he drinks non-virgin, he gets that green face. So that's pretty fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, movie, or this movie has the weirdest protagonist. Like, not even an anti-hero. Just, like, the guy who you root for. Uh, has a line in this movie that says i'd like to rape the hell out of her uh and then he says but i treat her real well so <laughs> that's your hero is the guy who says i like to rape the hell out of her and yep. then uh, he does um i thought that part was really funny too because he's like that creep from Rom- romania looking for virgins because i thought that could uh that could be a tagline for us yeah uh and then he's like but you should lose your virginity not from those religious perverts. Uh, so that was funny. But my point, I guess, is he's the weirdest hero. Like, just this, yeah. like, very blatant rapist who, like, he'll look at the lady and she'll be like, but I love you. And he's like, you bitch. And mm-hmm. then he like, slap her and then he'll rape her. And this is the guy you root for? I guess it makes a little bit more sense with what you were saying about the way Morrissey liked or, like, how he sees these things. Yes. Um. I think he says whores really funny. It's like who was. Oh, they all say whores. Who was. Yeah. And then uh, Udo is like, uh, the blood of these whores is killing me, which I thought was a really funny line. Uh, just really funny. Uh, then you get uh, blood bread, which is cool. Uh, and then you get Udo drinking up hymen blood, which is also pretty gnarly. Oh, yeah. Uh, this movie's got one of the best interpretations of like a Renfield. I know he's not called Renfield in this, but like Dracula's sidekick. Anton. He's so like, yeah, he's so like over expressive and just like, Ooh, mm. like I thought he was really fun. Well, it's, it's, it's our good friend Otto from uh flesh for Frankenstein as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, he, he was way better in this one. I thought, mm. but, um, I don't know, like for, I, I was, I went into this one, I watched them back to back and yep. I was, I really didn't want to watch this one anymore because I did not enjoy flesh for Frankenstein. And, uh, I don't know. This one surprised me. Hmm. I actually liked it. So again, it's not great, but it's better than Frankenstein. See, that's funny. Cause I'm the opposite. I actually, yeah. I preferred flesh for Frankenstein to this. Sure. Um, like I thought like this one was just a lot more boring, I guess. 
Um, cause like, yeah, there's like the first time I watched the movie through, uh, I didn't really pick up on sort of like the political aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Because there is like this whole angle of so you have like kind of like the the dying days of like the aristocracy with like the care you have like the 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 Dracula who's like part of a dying lineage of like of like that wealth in Europe, um, mm-hmm. and then you have also like the uh, the Italian patriarch uh, played by uh, famed uh, Italian director Vittorio De Sica, uh, who directed mm-hmm. such movies as like This Bicycle Thief, um, who's got like the weirdest delivery. Uh, cause he didn't speak, he doesn't speak English at all. So yeah. he started like phonetically doing his lines and just started saying stuff like his whole thing, just talking about Dracula <laughs> and, yeah. and talking about sending, uh, Dracula's urine to England to be tested. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he just made that up, I guess. He just That's did, pretty fun. He, he just did that and they kept it in cause they're like, okay. Um, but yeah. yeah, so, but then, so there's that aspect of like sort of these dying families, which is like, was really kind of the, what happened in Europe. And then you have like sort of the, this rise of communism, but it's like this like violent, horrible man uh, that mm-hmm. isn't like particularly likable, but it's like, he's, I mean, what would you rather have the, the blood drinking Dracula aristocracy or the like raping thug uh, communist? Um, and there's like no winning in either of those situations. Yeah. Um, neither are really a great option, but one is going to win out because you get to see that uh, uh, hammer and sickle spray paint in the background of his of his room mm-hmm. and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. So um, much fun. Yeah. Did, uh, did you notice the other uh, director cameo that showed up in this? We got, we got a little Roman Polanski. I he, did not. He, that, that's uh, him there with the mustache when they're doing the do what I do game or you can't do what I can do game. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's, yeah. that's him playing it with Anton. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. Now that you say it, I, mm-hmm. yeah, that is that is old Roman. I didn't realize that though watching it. Yeah. Uh, of course, I found it fitting that he was, of course, in a scene where a potential stat rape was going down. Oh, Jared. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I are you too, are uh, you implying that he was the one who did that? I don't know. What I'm talking about. Keep I'm, going. I have no idea either. Uh, I also <laughs> made note of the blood-soaked piece of bread that uh, Udo just mm-hmm. snacks down on. Have you ever wolfed down on anything like Udo does in that scene? Oh yeah, all the time. Mm-hmm. Man, you should see like the for today since I was really feeling it. I got some uh, some sweet Pizza Hut to really kick me back up, and I sucked every drop of essence out of that pizza. Yeah, so. You Udoed that. I Udoed that bad boy. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, the movie starts off really <clears throat> fantastically. There's like just the scene with him like lacquering up his uh, Dracula hair because oh, like, yeah. his hair's all yeah. washed out and white and whatnot. And so he has to yeah. apply his whole face and he puts through the black like stuff through his hair to make him all slick back. But then you get the great reveal where the camera just kind of tilts over and you realize he's looking in a mirror, but he can't see himself because he's a vampire. Mm-hmm. And it's just like one of those things that's like it gets you get you get the playback later on uh, where like he's just standing in front of a mirror and he's, you don't know what he's looking at. Like he's just staring yeah. at the mirror intently and she's talking and talking. And then she looks and realizes, Oh, he doesn't have a reflection. Damn it. Mm-hmm. He, it's a vampire. <laughs> but, you got me again. But I mean, you vampires, you, you vampires, but yeah, I mean the movie doesn't play at all. Like a vampire movie does. Like, it seems mm-hmm. like it's so like after like, all oh, right, here's Dracula. He's a vampire. He needs to get married. Like you're, you're along the trip with him. He's the sympathetic character. Um, right. even, and even though he's like not particularly sympathetic, he's actually really like a sad 
pile. Um, it's just kind of going through life, waiting for like his next hit to come along, and it never pays mm-hmm. off very well. So he's like drinking the blood of these non-virgins, and then he's vomiting it up, just like comedically, and puking into toilet, right. into bathtubs, and all over himself. But he's mm-hmm. just a, a sad little vampire man in his little wheelchair, getting around. Mm-hmm. See, that's what I liked. I was like, oh, that's fun. Just this, like. But at the at the start, I didn't like it. But later, when he just yeah, he's he's like sad and so sick. He's like, <coughs> he's like I'm sick. <laughs> I liked I liked that man. Yeah. I thought it was fun. Um, oh, and uh, I loved Udo Kier's uh, fur colored coat in this. It's just like oh. magnificent. It um, looks like it's real fucking human hair. Human hair, eh? Because <laughs> it, well, it's like long, right? Like the hair's long in portions. Like mm. it looks like human hair. Hmm. That's interesting. I didn't think about that. <laughs> well, you watch it again, buddy, oh, yeah. and you you let me know. Okay. Yeah, because actually in uh, Flesh, he also has a really nice um, uh, smoking jacket in there too. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Uh, what else would I say? Um, how would you rate uh, Joe D'Alessandro's rump? Uh, like about a 6 out of 10. Only a actually, 6 Actually, no, that's not, that's not true. He does have porn butt. For sure. The only reason I would rate it lower is every now and then it's like all really red in spots. And it's like, what's going on? It's like, were, was somebody hitting it? Like, it's just trying to like, possible. Get, you know, like kind of get the blood flow into it or something and make it peak. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, that guy's got porn butt for sure. Right. <laughs> for I, sure. I, I don't really know what you mean by porn butt. Well, you never seen porn butt? Um, what does that mean? What do you, what do you mean? Like butts and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you about it later. Okay. But butts and dumps, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so uh, between these movies, you had like your fill, I'm sure, of Udo Kier uh, to last you a little mm-hmm. while. You, you want to hear something funny? What? When we started Blood for uh, Dracula, Andrew was eating a tuna sandwich, and she was watching Udo Kier, and she just halfway through it, she's like, I can't even eat this. She's like, I can't look at this guy anymore. Because <laughs> like, during while he's putting all that stuff in his hair, he, she's like, he he physically makes me uncomfortable. Wow. And I was like, I was like, all right, <laughs> we did it. So, uh, anyways, yeah, yeah, I, I'm I'm done with Udo for a while. Okay, you're tapping out on Udo. Just for a while. Fair I'll enough. come back. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Uh. The the end of this movie. Uh. I think is pretty solid. Like it's definitely mm-hmm. like it redeems. I think kind of like a fairly slow paced movie. I mean, it's very typical like mm-hmm. uh, that Euro art house horror sexploitation type of stuff. Um. Like it. Like this movies all kind of have like kind of a, these languid paces. Um. Which I guess I don't know. I'm not sure about the intent there. Um. Because I mean, the movie has like the weird acting and like all the crazy like accents like every single member of that family all the sisters the mom mm-hmm. and the father they all have different like accents they're all from mm-hmm. different countries mm-hmm. one's english one's italian one's french one's uh, it's just like i mean it's so bizarre but like you don't even really notice like it, cause it doesn't really matter um but yeah i think like this movie definitely comes off as less campy as than right. than uh, flesher frankenstein um but mm-hmm. um yeah, I'm trying to think. So yeah, I mean, my, all my notes really. It's like yeah, the 
the Salo vibe once again. And I think it's mm-hmm. the music in particular, because it's actually got very similar sounding music, like that 1920s yep. um, like dance music that they use in Salo, ironically, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. It's used here. Um, and actually, the one thing, too, from Flesh Franks that I didn't mention is its use of Tannhauser, which I'm always up for me some Wagner. Wagner. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love that music, and it's used really well. There's like even like a, a child's like version on like a little xylophone or something like that yeah. that I thought was really good. Mm-hmm. Um, so the one thing I'll mention too is I guess like all three or both, sorry, all three, these two movies, they were all filmed in like three weeks. Uh, hmm. they, they filmed them literally like they finished flesh for Frankenstein in the morning. And it, yep. later that day they started blood for Dracula and they did it on $300,000. Hmm. Yeah. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Got to pay for the rent for the castle, I guess somehow. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I mean, what's kind of odd for me is like, uh, yeah, there's like the clunky acting. There's like stupid, stupid dialogue. I mean, mm-hmm. it's really like sub hammer stuff. But like yeah. the movie is also really well shot and made. Like he's <laughs> like, it's obviously Morsi knows what he's doing. Like the camera moving in, um, yeah. and like the like, there's like really great cinematography in this thing. Um, that mm-hmm. kind of like belies the fact that like, yeah, there's like these like weird decisions that like are just going to put people off. Um, and I guess like I'm not sure if there's intention to that. I'm not sure what the intention is. Like, mm-hmm. is he brings people's attention to the artifice of it. Um, like, how do you feel about that? If you're thinking about it in that sense, like, I mean, I assume that for you, it's just something you wouldn't do if you were making a movie. Like you don't want that in a movie. You don't want to, mm-hmm. you want to like create an invisible line, like of like, you don't, sure. want, you don't want to break people's, um, suspension of disbelief. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. This guy's weird. This guy's weird <laughs> stuff. That's okay. the only way to, that's the simplest way to put it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's see here. I don't know. Uh, That's it? I don't know. Maybe. Uh, I guess like uh, in that line of like movies of just like the strange, hilarious gore that yeah. like I think we both appreciate. I'm actually mm-hmm. really surprised at the amount of violence that shows up in the Criterion Collection between like yeah. John Woo's movies, Robocop, uh, Walkabout, which is a very different type of violence, uh-huh. uh, Silence of the Lambs, uh, Long Good Friday. Uh, there is mm-hmm. no shortage of uh, no shortage of the red stuff in the Criterion Collection, which I f- mm-hmm. appreciate. I think. Yeah, it's fun, man. Who doesn't like seeing that shit? Uh, a lot of people. Yeah, actually, a lot of Criterion lovers do not like uh, blood and guts in their movies. Well, they got to get over it. They got it. They do. Yeah. Um. Well, I think that brings us to our final moment here. That'll bring mm-hmm. us uh, on home. Is who hates these movies? Correct. Yes. So, uh, going through these here, we got a half star from X Knox Hatex. No hate, I guess. Uh, maybe, mm-hmm. but so no hate says maybe the worst film I've ever seen. It was in my uh, queue for quite a while, Netflix queue for quite a while, and I wanted to get rid of it. Don't know why I added it, probably because of the Andy Warhol connection, but it truly is one of the worst movies ever made, and not in the way where everyone involved is kind of in on it. Everyone was definitely taking themselves seriously, but everything from shooting to the acting to the editing to the script was awful. It also felt really claustrophobic with really tight shots where you couldn't see whatever else was in the scene. Truly terrible. And this is on, Mm. this is for Flesh for Frankenstein, these first two. Yeah. Uh, I don't know about that claustrophobia <laughs> thing. I didn't feel that at all. No, I didn't. I don't get that one. Uh, yeah. One star from Shepard Benjamin. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, if you ever wanted to see a sweaty Udo Kier make love to a dead body, then Andy Warhol's got the film for you. And it's always Andy Warhol's fault. It's just yeah. 95 minutes of well-toned man-ass, and occasionally Ooh. Udo Kier will flip his shit. How does this qualify as a film? Dracula needs a horny man. It's just inappropriate. Andy Warhol's actually looked at as a genius, guys. Hmm. Well, I think... I don't know. I think this guy, the stuff he described is actually the, the like the the good parts of these movies. Exactly. <laughs> so I don't know what he's talking about. This movie barely even had anything to do with Mary Shelley's original vision. It barely. It's like it, barely. It had nothing. Nothing. Oh, God, that's. <coughs> oh, Jerry. Let alone the basic ideas of one, one associates with the Frankenstein mythology. I wish I knew how to ruin art in the 60s because then maybe I would have had money to throw at talented people to make a good Frankenstein movie as opposed to throwing all my money at imbeciles who can't tell a story and horrible actors with asses like Latino women. <laughs> what? <laughs> yep. What does that mean? Uh, I guess Joe has a large butt. I, Man. I don't know. I guess that's, oh. oh boy! Uh, so uh, boy. Who, who hates blood for Dracula? Fish hates it. One star. Well, I had presumed with Warhol's name on the film, it was going to be exuberant, vivid, and rife with sexuality. I wasn't wrong. I just hadn't realized that was pretty much all that was going on in Blood for Dracula. With a plot line of Dracula going on a jaunt around Italy because he is in need of the blood of a virgin, his assistant reliably informs him there are plenty of these in Italy, obviously. Crude, crass, sensationalistic. You can throw all manner of insults and superlatives at this film, but none of them are really none of them really stick. It is frivolous and exploitive, but hardly evocative. <laughs> oh yes, evocative. Enjoyable for a lazy Tuesday afternoon's viewing, but was nothing more than a softcore pornography masquerading as a stylized horror film. It actually makes some Hammer horror look worthy of Oscars. <sighs> Like well, he he's undercutting Hammer there, but I mean, what did he expect? I knew going in, these were just like soft porn, soft core porn. Mm-hmm. I expected that. Yeah. Uh, Arlo J Wiley gave this one star, and he said Andy Warhol. They always hate at Andy Warhol. Yeah. Uh, Andy Warhol paid uh-huh. for the Velvet Underground studio time in 1966, which was the only cool thing he ever did. He also painted some soup cans and produced a really shitty Dracula movie that had a couple good scenes but was trying to be funny and wasn't. Mm-hmm. Sick yeah. burn. That damn Andy Warhol, man. Yep. That seems to be like the real sticking point. And then people get to pull out their own personal uh, garbage that they have with it uh, out on yeah. it. Yeah. Well, he does suck. <laughs> So there you go. There you go. There you have it. Andy Warhol sucks. I'm coming. I'm looking at you, Andy. Hashtag mm-hmm. at Warhol Foundation. Oh, God. Bunch of jerks. Yep. Yep. So, uh, Paul Morrissey's still alive, by the way. So you, you, didn't, you, you didn't claim him uh, to be dead. So that's good. Uh, yeah, I, um, I forgot. I, I would have just said that, though. So mm-hmm. uh, next time. Next time. Next time. Mm-hmm. Well, folks, that's it for our talk. After the break, we'll talk about, I don't know, having sex with gallbladders. Sure. Like to take a cement fix. Bigger standing cinema. Dress my friends up just for show. See them as they really are. 
But the people in my brain Two new pants to have a go I'd like to be a gallery Put you all inside my show Andy Warhol looks a scream Hand him on my woe Andy Warhol silver scream Can't tell them apart at Well, RJ, another fun episode. Fun. Yeah, fun bots, baby. Yep. There was no shortage shortage of that. And folks, you can email us at criterioncreeps at gmail.com. We've got a Facebook page. We're on Instagram. We're on the Letterboxd. Uh, I'm Jared Duncan. He's Barnloaf. We're on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes. Subscribe, like, follow, all that good stuff. Uh, special thanks mm-hmm. once again to Maurice Yakuar for uh, coming on to our show and talking with me, sharing his thoughts. Uh, later in the week, I plan on just releasing the whole interview, and you can hear more about what he's got to say about film, Canadian film history, uh, the first movie ever watched, his favorite movie, all that fun mm. stuff. Uh, but next week, RJ, we've got Spine number 29 coming our way. Because we are going back to Australia once again. Oh, no. Yeah, where they like to kill animals. Uh, and in this film, schoolgirls just up and disappear and never seen again. Because we're watching Peter Weir's Picnic at Hanging Rock from 1975. Maybe they had it coming. <laughs> they very well might. And we will find out next week, won't we? Yeah, I guess. I don't know. Okay. We'll see. Well, folks, that's it. Thanks for listening. Peace. Good night.